Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Go check out Morbidly Beautiful right now for all your horror pop culture needs from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and, well, everything in between. We'll have a great new podcast featuring myself on there called Cheer and Loathing, where Stephanie, the editor-in-chief, and I sit down and shoot the shit about movies. Basically, that's it. But it's fun. A lot of fun jokes going on. And I generally hate everything, and she generally loves everything, so it's a great dynamic. Just give it a listen. It's on the website. Now, last week, we wrapped up our look into the Arsguetia and the demons involved with that. So I thought, what next? What should we look at next? How about the seven deadly sins? How about over the next seven episodes, we look at one particular sin? Who wrote about it? The demons associated with it? And, well, what you can do to either avoid or achieve said sins. I figure today we start off with a fun little one, something everybody has committed probably at least once in their life, and that's lust. So sit back and, well, enjoy the ride. Kind of pun intended there. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Now, lust doesn't just mean sex. It doesn't just mean lusting after the human flesh in that sexual way. No, it can mean a few different things. It can mean lusting over anything, be it a person, be it a feeling, money, food. You can lust over a lot of things that don't necessarily have anything to do with sex. So we're going to look at a few of the different aspects of what lust is, what different religious texts say about it, and like I said, the demon associated with it. And we'll start off with the demon. And that demon is Asmodeus. That's a demon we looked at a long time ago on the history of demons. There's a whole episode about it, so you can go check it out if you really want the background story on that fun fellow. But yes, he is associated with lust. But what is lust exactly? Well, psychologically speaking, it is a force producing intense desire for an object or circumstance while already having a significant other or amount of the desired object. So if you're married and you want another person, that's a little lustful. Lust can also take any form, such as the lust of sexuality or the libido, money or power. It can also take such mundane forms as lust for food as previously mentioned. But that kind of falls under gluttony, so yeah, we'll cover that one later. Spoiler alert, gluttony is a deadly sin. Now, while lust can be distinguished from passion, it does share some of the same sort of intricacies. But passion tends to propel individuals to achieve something rather than just going for something they want in the moment. So again, in a married kind of sense, you are passionate towards your spouse, but you lust after a coworker. Kind of breaking it down very, very simply there. How does, though, lust relate to religion? Well, in a very basic sense, religions tend to draw a distinction between passion and lust by further categorizing lust as an immoral desire and passion as a morally accepted thing. 
Lust is defined as immoral because its object or action of affection is improperly ordered according to natural law and or the appetite for a particular object, like sexual desire. It governs the person's intellect and will rather than the intellect and will governing the appetite for the object, if that makes any degree of sense to you. It does to me, but it kind of sounds funny when you say shit like that. Passion, on the other hand, regardless of its strength, is maintained to be something God-given and moral because the purpose, the action, and intentions behind it are benevolent and ordered towards creation, while also being governed by the person's intellect and will. A primary school of thought on this is Thomism, which speaks on intellect, will, and appetite, and draws from principles defined by Aristotle himself. However, the exact definitions assigned to what is morally definite and order towards creation dependent on the religion. For example, differences between religions based in pantheism and theism will differ what is moral according to the nature of the quote-unquote God acknowledged or worshipped. For the sake of time in this podcast episode, I'm going to skip over a few religions and focus on a lot of the western ones. Western ones meaning like Christianity and more the newer religions. I'll throw in a few of the Eastern religions in there too for contrast and perspective, but we're going to stick with Christianity, Catholicism, and maybe Hinduism, maybe Islam, something like that. In the New Testament, it is said that lust often is associated strictly with sexual desires, probably because of this verse. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust, after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now that's from Matthew 5, 27, 28. There's another excerpt here, and it reads, You shall not covet thy neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, or his field, or his male slave, or his female slave, or his ox, or his draft animal, or any animal of his or whatever belongs to your neighbor. Now that's from Exodus 2017 of the New English Translation of the Septuagint. That excerpt does show that lust doesn't necessarily just mean lusting after the flesh in a sexual desire. It could mean anything. Your neighbor's possessions, for example, jealousy, sort of. However, we will get to jealousy or envy at a different time. Again, spoilers. While coveting your neighbor's wife may involve sexual desire, it is unlikely that coveting a neighbor's house or field is sexual in nature. And in most New Testament uses, the same Greek word for lust is shown, though it does not have a clear sexual connotation. There are a few different examples from the American Standard Version that uses the same word outside of any sexual context. Matthew 13, 17, Luke 22, 15, 16, Acts 20.33, Luke 15.14.16, they all mention lust in some sort of way that doesn't necessarily refer to a sexual experience. Now moving on to Catholicism. This should be fun, shouldn't it? According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, a Christian's heart is lustful when, quote, veneral satisfaction is sought for either outside wedlock or, at any rate, in a manner which is contrary to the laws that govern marital Intercourse. In other words, you have fuck times outside of your marriage, basically. Pope John Paul II said that lust devalues the eternal attraction of male and female, reducing personal riches of the opposite sex 
to an object for gratification of sexuality. In other words, lust devalues a relationship. You no longer have a personal or emotional connection with a person. You just want what makes you feel good. I can kind of see the point there. That's not as terrible as I thought it might be. But still, fuck time is fun. Just throwing that out there. Lust is considered by Catholicism to be a disordered desire for sexual pleasure, where sexual pleasure is sought for itself, isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. Again, in other words, Catholics really like their reproduction. Really, really like it. To the point where they don't like condoms or birth control of any sort. So, if you're having sex just for the feel-goods, and you're not doing it to make a baby, then it's a bad thing. Breaking it down as simply as I can here. In Catholicism, sexual desire in and of itself is good, and is considered part of God's plan for humanity. However, when sexual desire is separated from God's love, it becomes disordered and self-seeking. This is now seen as lust. So if you ain't doing it in God's name, goddamn, you're a selfish bastard. St. Thomas Aquinas differentiates between sexual intercourse within marriage, which is seen as good, though giving justice to one's spouse, and sins of lust, which can themselves be differentiated in magnitude of immorality according to intention and action. For example, Aquinas and other medieval theologists would consider rape a greater sin than masturbation, because rape is a sin against justice while masturbation is a sin against chastity, and justice is a supernatural property of God making it a greater virtue than chastity, a prosperity of man's human nature. That's a lot to unwrap. In other words, <laughs> that's going to be the theme of today's episode. In other words, masturbation is bad, but not as bad as rape. Makes sense. The Latin for extravagance is luxuria, which is used by St. Jerome to translate a variety of biblical sins, including drunkenness and sexual excess. Gregory the Great places luxuria as one of the seven capital sins. It is often considered the least serious of the deadly sins, however, narrowing its scope to disordered desire. In Romanesque art, the personified luxuria is generally feminine, often represented by a siren or a naked woman with breasts being bitten by snakes. Dante also had a mention of lust or luxuria, and it was the first circle of incontinence or self-indulgence on the descent into hell. And it is the last ledge on Mount Purgatory, representing the excessive disordered love of individuals. While for Edmund Spencer, luxuria was synonymous with the power of desire. For Gregory and subsequent Thomasists, the daughter's byproducts of luxuria included mental blindness, self-love, hate, an excessive attachment to the present. Marianne Dashwood has been seen as embodying such characteristics for a later age as a daughter of luxuria. The Catholic Church defines lust as the idolatry of sexual pleasure in all its forms. Contraception, masturbation, adultery, premarital relations, relations between persons of the same sex, etc., which destroys the human capacity of loving, that is, of the person to give him or herself to God and to others. Saint Jacinta 
Marto affirmed shortly before her death, the sins which take more soul to hell are the sins of the flesh. And that is where I disagree wholeheartedly with Catholicism. If you have sex with contraception or, you know, one night stand or, you know, outside your marriage, which, okay, that one's kind of shitty. Or if you're gay, you don't have the capacity to love. That is 100% bullshit, and you can fuck right off with that. I'm very, very passionate about this one. If you say a gay person cannot love, if you say somebody who masturbated cannot love, if you had sex with a condom or birth control pill or some other form of contraception, you can't love, I'll show you what you can't love. It's my foot straight up your fucking ass. I know I'm not the only one who feels that way, but there are probably a billion people on the planet who disagree with me, so whatever. I'll take you all on. Come at me. Now that we've covered a couple of the Western religions, let's look at more of the Eastern ones. Let's take a little look at Islam. In Islam, lust is considered as one of the primitive states of the self, called the nafs. Muslims are encouraged to overcome their baser instincts, and intentional lascivious glances are forbidden. Likewise, Lustful thoughts are disliked, for they are the first step towards adultery, rape, and other antisocial behaviors. Prophet Muhammad also stressed the magnitude of the second glance, as while the first glance towards an attractive member of the opposite sex could just be accidental or observatory. The second glance, however, could be the gate into lustful thinking, which naturally, according to the rules of most religions out there, automatically means you're a perverted rapist. Good old religion. God, it's so fun, isn't it? Subsequently, in Hinduism, lust is very similar in nature to the other religions that we mentioned. Lord Krishna, an avatar of Vishnu, declared in chapter 16, verse 21 of the Bhagavad Gita that lust is one of the gates to Naraka, or hell. In the ancient manuscript, the idea behind the word lust is best comprehended as the psychological force called wanting, which just basically means lust. Now, paganism is an interesting look into the dichotomy of what the seven deadly sins represent in theology versus polytheology. Now, while lust is seen more of a vice than anything else in paganism, it does have its place. There are gods associated with it, such as Aphrodite and Dionysus, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. But if lustful desires can be avoided, then it's probably best you should, though it's not necessarily frowned upon as much as other religions. At least that's what I'm getting from the research I've done. There's not a whole lot of information specifically about lust and paganism out there. Again, paganism features a lot of different religions, throughout time, it could vary from region to region. Earlier, we mentioned St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, this dude has written a whole lot about a whole lot of different sins, and he breaks down the different types of lust out there. Of course, sex in marriage is not a sin or a lustful action because it is the only way for humans to reproduce, and as we said, Catholicism is all about getting them babies born, no matter what, at any cost. He even said at one point, if the end be good, and if what is done is well adapted to that, then no sin is present. However, sex simply for the sake of pleasure is lustful and therefore a sin. 
He also says a man who uses his body for leechery wrongs the Lord. I'm not 100% sure what that means. Maybe somebody can fill me in here. Sex may have the attributes of being sinless. However, when a person seeks sex for pleasure, he or she is sinning with lust. Lust is best defined by its specific attributes of rape, adultery, wet dreams, seduction, unnatural vice, and simple fornication. And they're all broken down, or most of them are broken down anyway. So let's just start at wet dreams. That's something every little boy knows all too well about. You wake up in the middle of the night or in the morning and there is a cool wet blob on your sheets or in your PJs. It's awkward, you don't know what to do, and most times, most kids have no idea what the fuck just happened. Maybe nowadays they're a little more knowledgeable on it because of the internet and what actually is happening down there, but when it first happened to me, which it did, I kind of freaked out a little bit. I wasn't super up on what sex was, what ejaculation was, and yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get into it too much, but St. Thomas Aquinas defined and discussed the topic of nocturnal emissions, which occurs when one dreams of physical pleasure. Aquinas argues those who say that wet dreams are a sin and comparable to the actual experience of sex are wrong. Aquinas believes that such an action is sinless, for a dream is not under a person's control or free judgment. When one has a nocturnal orgasm, it is not a sin, but it can lead to sins. Aquinas says that wet dreams come from a physical cause of inappropriate pictures within your imagination, a psychological cause when thinking of sex while you fall asleep, and a demonical cause whereby demons act upon the sleeper's body, quote, stirring the sleeper's imagination to bring about an orgasm. In the end though, dreaming of lustful acts is not a sin. The mind's awareness is less hindered, as the sleeper lacks the right reason. Therefore, a person cannot be held accountable for what they dream while sleeping. That's good, I guess. It's basically saying that if you're not in control of your actions because you're not conscious, you cannot be sinning. Fair enough, Tom, fair enough. Next up is adultery. One of the main forms of lust seen frequently during the Middle Ages was the sin of adultery. The sin of adultery occurs when a person is unfaithful to his or her spouse. Hence, quote, invading of a bed of not one's own. Adultery is a special kind of ugliness and many difficulties arise from it. When a man enters the bed of a married woman, it is not only a sin, but it wrongs the offspring, because the woman now calls into question the legitimacy of her own children. If a wife has committed adultery before, then her husband will question all of his wife's children if they are his offspring or not. Okay, fair enough. Simple fornication is next. Simple fornication is having sex with one's wife for enjoyment rather than bearing children. Fornication is also sex between two unmarried people, which is also a mortal sin. Aquinas says that fornication is a deadly crime. Fornication is a mortal sin, but as Aquinas notes, Pope Gregory treated sins of the flesh as less grievous than those of the spirit. Fornication was a grave sin, such as that against property. Fornication, however, is not as a grave sin directly against God and human life. Therefore, murder is much worse than fornication. Property in this case means that a daughter is the property of her father, and if one does wrong to her, one then does wrong to him and the whole family, therefore. Seducing a virgin or seeking pleasure from an unmarried woman is an invasion of a father's property. 
That is a very, very old school way of thinking, which doesn't really apply to today's standards. But hey, there's still people out there who believe in that kind of nonsense. Also notice the language. It's always the woman's fault. A man goes out to seduce a virgin. But what if a experienced woman seduced a virgin male? Hmm? It could happen. What's the consequence there? What's the outcome? Who does he belong to? Is that the mother's property? Is that the father's property? It's all very unclear, which is religion in a nutshell. Next up we have maybe the worst kind is rape. And rape is a kind of lust that often coincides with seduction and is defined as a type of leechery. Rape comes with force and violence. Rape occurs when a person craves the pleasure of sex so intensely that he uses force to obtain it. Rape is committed when violence is used to seduce or deflower a virgin. Rape harms both the unmarried girl and her father because the girl is, of course, the father's property. Duh. Rape and seduction can be discussed together because both sins involve deflowering of a virgin. However, rape can happen without seduction, as when a man attacks a widow or a sexually experienced woman and violates her. Therefore, wherever violence accompanies sex, you have the quality of rape and the sin of lust. The last part there doesn't make a whole lot of sense because there is the invention of BDSM. There's a lot of what could be perceived as violence in there, but it's all out of love, so it's okay. Last up we have seduction, which goes kind of hand in hand with rape apparently, and is a type of lust because seduction is a sex act, which ravishes a virgin. They didn't even use the word ravish in the rape thing, so yeesh. Lust is a sin of sexual activity and quote, a special quality of wrong that appears if a maid still under her father's care is debauched. <laughs> debauched, good word. Seduction involves a discussion of property, aka a daughter, as an unmarried girl is, again, property of her father. A virgin, even though free from the bond of marriage, is not free from the bond of her family. When a virgin is violated without the promise of engagement, she is prevented from having an honorable marriage. Which is why you're not supposed to wear white if you had sex before marriage. Naughty naughty. It's a shameful thing to herself and to her family. A man who performs sexual acts with a virgin must endow her and have her to wife. That is a direct quote. And if the father, who is responsible for her, says no, then a man must pay a dowry to compensate for her loss of virginity and future chance of marriage. Alrighty. And the last one, which is up there with rape, is unnatural vice. According to Aquinas, it is the worst kind of lust because it is unnatural in act and purpose. Many varieties of unnatural vice exist. Aquinas provides several examples, including bestiality, of course, or intercourse with a thing of another species, which I would only be bestiality, I don't think there's anything else you could have sex with, incest, sodomy, and not observing the right manner of copulation. So again, I agree with all of those except for sodomy and the quote, not observing the right manner of copulation, which essentially means homosexual love. You're allowed to be gay, it's fine. Don't listen to what religion has to say because they're wrong. Incest, 100%. Forced sodomy, 100%. Bestiality, yeah, 100%. Those are all unnatural vices. You should not do those things. But be gay. 
be happy, love who you want, have sex with who you want, as long as they want to have sex with you back. It's a basic rundown. You don't need religion to tell you to be a decent human being. Let's just get that out there. But that does bring us to the end of lust. With our boy Asmodeus, I'm just going to leave you with one last quote. Now here, it says about lust, or leechery, which I now know means to be like rape, essentially, is the intense longing is usually thought of as an intense or unbridled sexual desire, which may lead to fornication, including adultery, rape, bestiality, and other sinful sexual acts. However, lust could also mean other forms of unbridled desire, such as money or power. Henry Edward Manning says the impurity of lust transforms one into a slave of the devil. Dante defined lust as a disordered love for individuals. It is generally thought the least serious of the capital sins, or the seven deadly sins. It is an abuse of a faculty that humans share with animals, and sins of the flesh are less grievous than the spiritual sins. Now that does bring us to the end of today's episode. My name is Casey, and if you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Any five-star reviews will be read out on the show, so it's a great way to get a shout-out if you want. You can also follow along on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, as in production, on Instagram at OminousOriginsPod, or on Facebook at HorrorShots. Feel free to drop any messages or comments you want in there as well. That'd be super awesome. So, until next time when we look at another deadly sin.